This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, 3 Triple R's weekly canary in the coal mine in a world gone mad. There's a lot of clanging back there. There's going to be a slab penalty for clanging soon. Uh, Bushy's my name. Joining me in the studio this evening on rotation is the ever-lovely Belle of Glasgow, Kate Dundas. How art thou? I'm highly excited about tonight's oh, show, Bushy. Rightly so, <laughs> rightly so. Our regular co-conspirator, Adam Grubb, is away this evening. Um, greetings, Adam, wherever you might be. Uh, bicycle Whisperer and a very smooth operator of the panel, Jed McCartney, is running the show tonight. Uh, our guests this evening are nothing short of brilliant Katie, can you please introduce our two of our first three guests this evening? Yes, I can. Dressed in black tonight. But they're not into Megadeth. <laughs> not into Megadeth. <laughs> We're delighted to welcome Stuart Harrison and Simon Knott, the architects. I have a little quote that I found from um, the Herald, in fact. Like Margaret and David, without the bickering, Simon Knott and Stuart Harrison set out to do for architecture what Pomerantz and Stratton did for cinema. And over 10 years in this exact slot, do you think you achieved that, Architects? And welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Kate. And I think the only question there is, is who's David and who's Mar- Margaret? <laughs> we, did often, we did often have that discussion. And in, in a wonderful bit of synergy on our uh, last show, which we did yes. uh, OB down at um, Riverland, down on, uh, down on the Yarra, down near um, Fed Square, and it was, which was a fantastic night, and a whole of architects came down, and we had a really beautiful time of it. Ten years and three days. Yes, and at the end of it, <laughs> uh, the, afterwards we went up, upstairs up to Fed Square and, and had dinner there with about sort of 15 friends and up on the screen was David and Margaret's last show as Aww. we had dinner sort of and they, we watched them sort of walk off the stage together in a fantastic that bit of comedy. That was very yeah. fitting. Did you two walk <laughs> off away from dinner together into the sunlight? <laughs> we did. We did. Stars and aligned. <laughs> and of course it is worth putting out that Christine Phillips uh, for half of our ten years, five of our ten years, was our uh, was our co-host, and uh, Rory Hyde started the show yes. with us before he became an international superstar. <laughs> so it was actually a four-person project, and uh, it was a miracle it ran for ten years because we genuinely had no idea what we were doing, um, and we're very, you know, over the course of time, even though it's only been a couple of years, it's it's glad now that it looks in retrospect like a worthwhile worthwhile adventure. Yeah, I mean, we thought it would last six months at the most. <laughs> amazing that it went on that long. Well, oh, it's, it's revered. Happy. It's revered yeah. it and talks, it's iconic. It talks a lot about Triple R, actually, and about what Triple R was, because we were really given that slot. And, and in, in those 10 years, there's no one here ever told us what to do or what to say or, or how, how we should uh, conduct ourselves in any manner across it. So um, so it was. I think that says a lot about the way this place operates and the sort of slightly anarchic quality that is Triple R and, and has kept it instead for 40 years now. 
Yes, uh. well done, Triple R, and thank you for having us on the show also. Um, we have a third stellar guest with us tonight. We're absolutely delighted to welcome Rob Adams. Now, Professor Rob Adams is currently, I hope still, the Director of City Design and Projects at the City of Melbourne. But Rob is also known for creating the City of Melbourne that we all absolutely love um, the laneway culture, the bluestone paving, the tree-lined streets, the Yarra River pathways, which are just fabulous, pedestrian-friendly Swanston Street, Birrung Mar, urban renewal of disused spaces, really everything that makes Melbourne the fabulous place that it is today. And in 2007, he received an Order of Australia for contributions to urban design, town planning and architecture. So welcome, Rob. Great pleasure to be here, and I can't believe I did all of that. Someone's giving you the wrong notes. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know, it was all fabulous. Um, so the theme of tonight's show is designing the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. So we often talk about greening the apocalypse. What does that mean? Does it mean organic sourdough bought locally? Does it mean iterative steps of doing as much as we possibly can in our own gardens and backyards? Mm. Or does it mean redesigning the city and fundamentally the way that we use infrastructure and the way that we actually live so, is it the last one, Kate? Is it the last one? I you forgot so. shipping containers full of guns and all that other sort of hot Texas oh, stuff. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's true. Do we want to barricade <laughs> ourselves into the countryside, yeah. look after only ourselves, and make sure our larder is stocked with lots of tins and we have guns to fight mm. people off? Mm. Or do we want to think more or carefully about the city? Yeah. <laughs> so let's consider the city for the whole show, in fact. Um, we're responding to this there's many many challenges facing the city and one of them is a huge booming population uh, particularly for melbourne we're heading towards a population of i think what's the what's the most recent projections is it eight million by 2025 yeah. and we're going to double double the population we i actually think someone wise uh, uh sitting next to me once said in, in a lecture that you know if you think about it we're going to you know in, in the next 35 years or so we're going to double the population here so if you, if you think about it, we're going to have to build as much infrastructure as we've built in the whole history of the city to support that mm. and if you think about trying to do that in the 35 years it's sort of almost impossible you know it's, it seems like well, it seems like a herculean task anyway yeah. and, and there's a subtlety there you, you're not going to build the same infrastructure you've got to build the same capacity yeah. and i think there's a there's a really interesting nexus between building infrastructure and building capacity uh, and we get the two mixed up quite often uh, certainly i think our politicians and our you know, infrastructure uh, organisations tend to get it confused and think we just got to carry on building the same. Well, uh, let's dwell on infrastructure for a second as we've brought it up so early in the show. Um, East Westlink, for example, major, major expensive infrastructure for trucks and cars. Do we need to consider building this really heavy, hardcore infrastructure and building more and more roads or... Is there another way we can think about the existing infrastructure that we have and the way that we live? I think uh, the problem we have is we, we build for peaks. Um, so we build for that you know, few hours early in the morning or at, at five o'clock. So let's, let's take an example. If, uh, when, when they had the earthquakes in Christchurch and uh, they lost a lot of their schools, what they did is they hot-seated all the schools. So they got, had two sessions running a day out of the same facility. Now, if you did that uh, in Melbourne, uh, you'd take something like 7% of the traffic off the roads. And if you took 7% of the traffic off the roads, you would actually get those school holiday feelings 
where you can actually travel around quite easily. Mm. Is, is that the uh, is that the dry at school holidays? It's only a seven percent drop in road traffic. It's mostly mm. slightly more than that, but because you would be hot seating, you'd have yep. half going in the morning and half going at lunchtime. Right, right. So, um, and it's those. But do we want to make it easier for people to travel by car? Not necessarily, no. Uh, I mean, an interesting figure I, I, I got the other day was on public transport, and I don't know whether you saw the article that came out from Billy Giles Corte and the Lancet saying, you know, eighty-five percent of the trips made in Melbourne are made by car. It's hideously easy to travel by car in Melbourne. Yeah. Now, if you dropped uh, the car usage by five percent to eighty percent, that that would actually equal two million new public transport trips. So there's, there's the challenge. How are we going to fit 2 million new public transport trips onto our existing system? Well, one way might be uh, every person who drives a tram goes on a shift and spends 17% of their time waiting at red lights. So if you could actually get them to go through the red lights and reduce it to 10%, with the equivalent of putting 30 trams on the, on the network. So there are a whole lot of very simple things that don't take a lot of money that we're just not actually doing at the moment. And, and, the, and the way technology can also start to improve the efficiency of those existing networks as well will come to play a lot more, as it already has in a pretty short space of time. But you know, if you think about it, actually, then congestion starts to be a good thing because what congestion will start to do is force people into other modes of transport and mm. other... As long as that capacity, as Rob was saying, is com- increased on those other networks. Mm. Yeah, it's about choices. I mean, Melbourne, it is too easy to drive in Melbourne, and Melbourne is a victim of, of, of that. I think what we're seeing is a lot of good intent around uh, public transport, networked, integrated transport. We see a lot of rhetoric around it, but the reality is, in smug Melbourne, we're still a very car-dependent city. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though certain groups of us work and live in environments that are well-connected, the vast majority of metropolitan Melbourne is an appallingly connected, mm-hmm. car-dependent mm-hmm. Uh, city. Yeah, can and, I, and big steps to do that, mm. address that, have not occurred. No, at, at, at a governmental level. Historically, Melbourne, uh, it's a, the port city that took the gold from Bendigo out to the world, had big, wide streets, had a lot of affluence from almost the beginning. Um, fairly flat topography, a lot of advantages that made it like, well before the vehicle, well before the motor vehicle, I should say. There was wide streets and all of those sorts of things. So it, it was a city ripe for car culture when it came along. Mm. Older cities in Europe, for example, probably didn't have that. What about other Australian cities? Are other Australian cities seeing the same insufferable congestion as Melbourne? I don't. I, I presume Sydney probably. You don't know anything does, about so. insufferable congestion, well, you Australians. Sydney, <laughs> Sydney's a really Sydney's Sorry. a really interesting example because yeah. the city of Sydney is probably the most one of the two most progressive councils in the country. Has. Re- embarked on a very aggressive bike um, lane campaign mm. in the central city and despite the normal you know sh- sort of uh, scaremongering this is now working incredibly effectively mm. and very this is uh, Lord Mayor Clovermore Clovermore who's, yep. who's a, a giant in New South Wales politics is probably more significant politically than the Premier which is an unusual situation yep. um, and very effective in terms of uh, putting together a pro- progressive policies around transport and and equity in the city. So City of Sydney, in a city with a tight grid network, you know, a tight street network, has put in... So you go into Sydney tomorrow and you'll see very generous bike lanes in very constrained streets. Mm-hmm. This is a very gutsy political move. So whether... And there's a, it's complicated politics in Sydney, but this has been an amazing move forward and it's happened. And now people have just... It's just part of the city. And more of it's going to happen. So it shows that leadership around these issues 
it has to be political. So it takes those really strong leadership decisions which Clover is bringing in Sydney. Are we seeing that at all in Melbourne? Well, Melbourne's had a very progressive um, council here as well. And you know, in some ways, not the same fire pit of politics that occurs in central Sydney in New South Wales. Rob obviously has been very close to this and you're right to, um, we're right to credit Rob on making the most of those very wide streets, mm. you know, putting trees back into streets and giving that generosity of space and making the street a public space again. Yep. But at the same time, there's still an enormous way to go. We're still a very car-dependent city and we all know people who drive to work who, mm-hmm. live in, who work in the city. Yep. And this is this is crazy in the twenty first century. But also, but also one of the and this is we we'll just jump straight into this too from this discussion about you know about doubling the population and infrastructure. And you look at the thirty year infrastructure plan, and everyone instantly all the articles, everything in the papers is all about roads, rail. Th- those are the things that are talked about. Uh, our public transport systems, and uh, really, I mean, if you look through that document, you know, the large portion is, is all the other infrastructure. Actually, what do we have to do to get stuff around? What happens with things like freight? It's a boring topic, but that's important. Like mm-hmm. people are. You know what happens when they order something from uh, from Apple if it doesn't arrive? You know within three days. Yeah, it's all that stuff about getting stuff around around the city. It's uh, it's schools, uh, it's policing, it's hospitals. Uh, it's all that infrastructure that we. I mean, the cities are incredibly complex, dynamic things, and we can't just focus on one part of it. And what happens in politics is we tend to focus on one part of it that is the most politic politically popular thing uh, rather than thinking about the whole and that leads to this sort of piecemeal solution so I mean we really need to be thinking and I think you know that 30 year infrastructure plan starts to sort of frame that quite well but um, it's a question of whether you know automatically they sort of suggested some ideas about sort of tolling and and the way we might do little things better in the way we do uh, you know uh, progressive tolling Um, Mm. and that was knocked on the head also almost immediately by the people who commissioned the the study so the commission the 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 frame so you can see how the politics are already starting to play into those types of mm. yeah. um, those strategies. I, I think there's a fundamental thing, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to bring it back to roads because I agree with you about the other infrastructure. But um, the the problem we've got um, is we just carry on expanding. Yeah, and so we keep on demanding more infrastructure. The problem of farmland as your city base. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think it was 85 million hectares of uh, farmland we've actually put under asphalt since the 1980s. I mean, it's a huge amount of asphalt. Wow. Mm. So, um, you know, the the interesting thing is uh, if you stopped and just said, look, we're going to compact, we're not going to build another road, we're going to actually work within the infrastructure we've got, the financial savings on that are huge. Uh, they come come down to, on a study that we, we did, and it might be questioned, $400 billion dollars in 50 years, you'd save on infrastructure costs. So mm. imagine the reinvestment out of that. But to do that, we'd need to redesign the way that our actual living and lifestyle worked because we couldn't all be using the infrastructure at peak hours. We'd have we'd to, have to re- stagger We'd have it. to redesign no. the planning scheme. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> we'd, have to have a, we'd have to have a metropolitan planning authority. But I think we are starting to undergo a shift in the way people are thinking about housing, and I think that is starting to happen in that um, you know people under 40 now uh, so, or a vast majority of people are, are starting to say we don't want to live in the suburbs. We don't actually want, you know, we don't, we'd rather forego the house. And we're starting, to, people are starting to choose multi-residential living as a lifestyle option. It is, it is, it, it is under, we're starting to undergo that shift, I think, well, for the, the first Grant time Institute, in our history. The, the Grant Institute research says that that's not a generate, that's a, that's a cross 
demographics. Yeah, it is, it is, and it's 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 starting. We are starting to see a shift in how we think about that. Uh, that hasn't happened before in our history as a as a as a, as a culture in in Australia. And I think that shift will start to start to turn into other sorts of which it already is in other which the Grattan Institutes of. Uh, Institute report predicted other sorts of housing within, particularly in those middle ring suburbs. And I know, you know Rob's done a lot of work in China and a lot of uh, government agencies and architects have done a lot of work in trying to push uh, the development of those uh, middle ring suburbs especially. Well, the interesting thing is uh, you don't have to push the middle ring suburbs much. We're talking about the potential of actually putting this whole population on about 7.5% of the metro area. And I think This is the transport corridor yeah. theory. And, and the, 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 the interesting thought about that is um, it's politically palatable. You're not telling everybody you're going to get rid of suburbia. Mm. You're just saying to, you know, there is another option yeah. that we can provide. I think that work that you did, Rob, a few years ago is such important work, but I also think it's part of the problem in the, in the sense that it avoid, it, it's so politically palatable. It's, it's insane that it, it hasn't happened. Yeah. But what we actually need is the ability for people to subdivide and develop in a sensible, low-scale, low-rise, high-density way sites that are not on transport corridors that are close-ish to them do you know what i mean outside of the outside of those yeah. transport corridors let's pull this back a little bit so yes. i think the Sorry, Kate. <laughs> getting very very detailed into very planning detailed. decisions architects east west link was a bad idea <laughs> well, triple r not for everyone for anyone So you're currently listening to Greening the Apocalypse, where tonight we're speaking to the architects, Stuart Harrison and Simon Knott, and Professor Rob Adams. So let's talk about housing. So the main rhetoric that we see in the media at the moment is the gigantic tower blocks going up in the CBD and the discussion around tiny little apartments um, versus urban sprawl and large blocks with very large houses on them, no area for garden, just sprawling out as far as the eye can see. There are things happening in the middle. There's a bit of medium density going on. Mm. But I'd be interested to talk about what that means for the way that we're able to live our lives. So if we need to change the way that we live our lives to become, to have less impact on the planet, to have it the option to be able to produce our own energy, produce our own food, um, live in a more flexible way, perhaps live in different family setups and co-housing, for example. How does the existing housing stock that we have and the way that the developers are driving new housing impact on our opportunities to live in perhaps a more sustainable way? I, I just question that because the idea that developers always drive housing, because developers will respond to the market, they always will. If the market's there and they can facilitate it, it will move in that direction. And this is what uh, we were t- talking about earlier, a report done, a great report done by Jane, Jane Francis Kelly, the Grattan Institute, talking about exactly that, the discrepancy between the high tower blocks and the, the great wealth of, the great majority of, of housing in Australia was built in the periphery or in, in tower blocks in, in right in the urban centres and that there was a huge demand for other housing stock in the middle yeah, and, we, that, that, and, that we can, and that we can start to deliver that. And, and I think we are starting to deliver that by choice. People are starting to forego the idea of having a piece of land. They're starting to forego a car because they can use things like Uber, Go-Gets and other modes of transportation as well as public transport for a, a, a place in, with great amenity close to the sort of shops and restaurants and everything they want to do in the city or in the, in the, in the inner suburbs. Is it, 
I think in principle that's right, but as opposed to Simon's relatively optimistic view of that, my, my take out <laughs> of the, of the Grattan Institute <laughs> research was that the, the development market is profoundly inefficient. This is, this is not a true market. Like in, in a kind of um, neo sort of ec- liberal economic world, the market responds to demand. What the Grattan Institute report clearly worked out is that people demand a certain kind of housing and the market completely fails to deliver it. Now, you might speculate on the reasons. It might be real estate agents, it might be developers, it might be a combination of the two, it might be planning policies. But the market doesn't actually provide, and the developers are the interested in the market, the market doesn't provide the housing we'd choose, which is basically the conclusion of the Grattan Institute report. Because it turns out people want well-connected, reasonably modest-sized housing. That is uh, proximity-based urbanism. Uh, they can get to work reasonably easily and get to schools and, uh, and retail and, and community facilities. And what we do in Australian urbanism is provide the exact opposite. The yeah. absolute exact opposite. The exact see, opposite. See, I think this is changing. And I think it, I it think may it is, well this be changing. This is a 2011 report. It's maybe changing for those who can afford to purchase in the middle and inner ring suburbs. But well, where the houses are affordable in the outer suburbs. We are seeing a boom in townhouse developments across the city. And that's exactly what they were saying wasn't delivered within that report is, is medium density, uh, fairly low cost. Because what developers are also seeing is actually cheaper to build. You can actually build them cheaper than you can sort of multi-storey dwellings because they're, they're relatively, you know, they're cost-effective building techniques. Um, and you can provide sort of smallish, high-density living within those areas. You can if the, if, if the planning scheme allows. So we call this concept... <laughs> the, the plan- is the, is the we issue. call this concept the missing middle. Yes. So, yeah. Rob? Rob? Well, look, well, I think there's an interesting thing here because I don't think it's that black or white. Mm. Um, ironically, if you had to say, let's compare, uh, compare suburban development with inner city, put aside the towers. If you want for an efficient city density, mixed use and accessibility, well, the towers win. Um, the, the, the problem we've got with the towers is we're actually doing them in a fashion that doesn't actually give us good amenity within the city. Mm-hmm. So the fundamental thing about, uh, we, we talk about the size of a, you know, an apartment. What about the quality of the street? What about where we actually spend most of our time outside of these buildings? And I think that's uh, the other thing we need to consider in this debate, you know, the quality of the public realm. And, uh, I, I, you know, I think architects would uh, get the apartments right if we actually start to put some constraints on that market. And, again, it comes back to planning. If you actually said there has to be inclusive rezoning, you need to have 20% of the apartments in any dwelling need to be affordable. If you uh, had an uplift by changing the Planning Act and you actually recaptured some of that and reinvested that back in the community facilities, you'd start to get a better city. Mm. And what we're doing is we're actually giving away the farm. And why, why is it, Rob, that we don't do that? Why have we not had the political leadership to, to capitalise on that? Because this is not rocket science either. This happens all around the world. The it policies, does. That exactly what you spoke about, it happens in a number of cities around the world. Well, Canada's got inclusive zoning. I think it's 20%. Uh, Sydney's actually ex- got development contributions. Can yeah. you just explain what inclusion rezoning is? We're getting it a little bit technical. It basically means um, if a developer is going to uh, build a large apartment building, 20% of those units need to be affordable. Uh, by whatever the definition is as, as affordable in that particular country. But what it means is, you know, your um, co-workers, you know, people out of the hospitality industries, uh, out of, you know, nurses and people like that Key can works. actually afford to live in the central city. 
So how about some more radical approaches to housing? For example, co-housing with shared living spaces and opportunities to um, not live in a particular family unit. Are we seeing that at all happen in Melbourne? I think you're seeing it emerge. I mean, I think uh, things like Nightingale are, are basically saying, let's drop the developer out of the equation. The developer's not adding value. Um, so let's, you know, find ourselves a good architect. Let's get together in some cooperative fashion, get the finances together to build apartments. And they're saying they're dropping about 20 to 30% out of the cost. So I think those models will start to emerge and are emerging. And, and having a number of shared spaces within those, that, that is definitely happening by, by necessity too. Yeah, I, think, I mean, a Nightingale model is a, is a fantastic model, uh, and knowing a lot of the people involved, but that is not... Can you just give not, a little bit of background on what that is? Well, I'll pretend to be Jeremy McLeod for a second, but it, it's really about, it is about taking developer out of the equation. It's about, it's basically crowdfunding at a, at a larger scale where um, people, inform people, particularly architects, fund a development uh, for its substantial development contribution and then other people buy apartments but the apartment design is good it's based on high amenity living there are communal spaces and it's capped as a profit cap 15 percent and there's resale price controls it's it's a really aggressive and really noble and really good attempt to try and deal with how housing is currently procured and delivered, but it's not co-housing. That's uh, the point uh, I no, make. but it's but it's getting cl- but it's getting close to that sort of model. It's probably a more feasible model of that. And the big cost savings, you said, is dropping out car parking and real estate agents and and a couple of other things within the department development, concentrating those. So the cost comes down, the profits capped to the developer, so those returns get then given back to that. So it's a lower cost, more amenable housing for the purchaser. But what would be interesting is to see the Nightingale model, which is highly lauded uh, and and really great work, important work, how does that model play out in the outer suburbs, mm-hmm. where the vast majority of housing this year and next year will still be provided in this country? And, you know, we can all go, yes, high amenity apartments, we like that. We like transport along, we like uh, apartments along transport corridors, we like that as well. But the vast majority of housing in this country will be suburban subdivisions of houses that are four bedrooms. Now, I'm interested in the suburban subdivisions and what's driving the very, very large houses on large blocks with a one metre perimeter garden. Is that the developers driving that? Uh, I think it's the way they're sold. I mean, I think um, in this bigger equation, what we're talking about here, and it goes within in the city or on the periphery. I've said for a long time, I think the best thing we could do to improve the the amenity within our housing stock is ban political donations from developers to politicians, because I think it, it is the process is is corrupt at some level. Um, it, it, because there's too much of that interaction. It's banned in New South Wales. It should be banned here, um, and the, too much of it is driven by profit over uh, over good common sense and when that comes into the equation we're going to get poorer product out of it so um Mm. Look, I think you, you hit upon it first time, Ryan, when you said it's marketing. I think the image you sold, and you saw it the other day in The Age, Aisha Dar talking about, you know, this family moving out to the fringe and they were, you know, running over a green hill. It was almost like the hills are alive. And uh, I, I felt really sad for them because what they're not being told is that what they see as affordable, which was about a $450,000 package, doesn't equate in that they're going to have to have two cars, that they're going to spend mm. a large proportion of their life driving to and from everything they need to get. And, uh, you know, if you look at all the trends in, in those areas, you're getting poor health, uh, you know, in, in both, you know, cardiac, uh, diabetes, uh, you know, obesity. You're getting fam- family violence. Propensity, you know, if you look at 
relatively large of, uh, degrees of family violence on the fringe. Obviously, there's a degree of frustration built in there. And there are a whole lot of other emerging factors coming up. Loneliness. Loneliness. Lots of Isolation. Yeah, very Isolation. We have to be careful not to fall into a very traditional architect-led mm. trap of dismissing the suburbs. I mean, the suburbs at their best are high amenity, fantastic forms of living if you do them well. So what does a well-designed suburb look like? Well, it has great shared outdoor space. It has modest housing in it that's well-designed. What's a modest house? Well, the small home service, which operated in Melbourne in the 50s and 60s, operated, delivered houses of around 110 square metres on average. The average Australian house dwelling is now 250 square metres and if you're going for suburban subdivisions, often you'd be purchasing houses of 400 square metres on blocks that are getting smaller and so forth. We've done this a bit on the show, the square metre per occupant. And energy rating tools don't account for size, which Mm. is a crime. Mm. So... High amenity suburbs are also well connected suburbs. They've got access to transport, whether it's train, the things we like, and tram, the things we like, or things like bus, the things we don't tend to like, but the things that are vitally important, mm. and bus services that are well designed that interface with other transport networks. Yeah. If suburbs are delivered well, they can be relatively high density, mm-hmm. very low scale, and very high amenity. And Which we see in the, the middle ring suburbs. We mm. see it traditionally in the middle ring suburbs, and there's absolutely no reason, other than reasons of taste and essentially bullying by real estate agents that it doesn't occur in the outer suburbs. Simon, you went back to 1950s to quote an yes. example of when you got good suburbs. You know, we're living with a past dream. You can actually just get up there on Google and just go to the inner suburbs and actually take a photograph of that and then go to the outer and put it next to it and see the difference. We aren't building good suburbs. And no, I'm, no, I'm no, with no, you. No, 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 no. You know, we I, haven't been I lost that skill. I don't want to destroy the suburbs. I just don't want to build more of the sort of suburb we're building today. Oh, the suburb we're building today is, is bad. Don't, don't, I'm, I'm not saying the suburb... I, I, I am deeply nostalgic for the suburb of the 50s, 60s, 70s and, and, and early 80s. We can do this better, though, and people are going to continue to live in this model. We can, we can advocate for other models as much as we like, but this is the reality. So if we are trying to make a fundamental difference, this, this is the space. And Arctic's guilty, you know... And standing guilty here traditionally don't work in this field. And it's also, I think it is a marketing ploy too, is, and the way that these are sold, they're sold largely off the plan. And if you put some up, you come up to them and say, I've got $300,000 to spend, I can have 400 square metres or I can have 200 square metres. This might be pretty ordinary, actually, when you get in there and live in it. Uh, this might actually be much better designed. Well, it's hard for people to say, well, gee, I wouldn't mind the one that's 400 square metres. I'll get an extra, like, mm. you know, this Double. and this and this. And yeah. that, there is a cultural belief that indoor space is better than outdoor space, and that's really not true. Yes. Mm. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 R. Yes, and Triple R is where you are. Greening the Apocalypse is the program you are listening to, and tonight we are designing the apocalypse with Stuart and Simon from The Architects and Professor Rob Adams. We've been talking all things about city and urban design and how it can affect us and create change. Uh, We're going to touch on a few things in the last 10 minutes of the show, possibly a bit of uh, stuff about energy, about finances, Um, all the things that are going to be key indicators and key drivers for retrofitting the suburbs. Uh, Now, Stuart, just before we were off air and you were mentioning one of the key reforms that you say is important for retrofitting the suburbs. Yeah, Bushy, I think 
banking and finance and, and loans are a key instrument and they're a very conservative instrument. So, so when you uh, – and most people who buy property are buy, borrowing the money, they're renting the money. And banks have a lot of really onerous constraints around what you're going to do with that money. Mm. It's very hard, for example, for people to borrow for design services. So let's say you want to engage some designers to mm. design your project – bank essentially won't lend you the money for that. Let's say you want to factor in your um, relative transport costs. Banks mm. don't factor for that. Banks are a bit like... So what's a relative transport cost in Well, in so, so, I mean, we, this came up a bit before, but if you do live in an out-of-suburban location, in a mm. suburb that's not great and it's poorly connected, you're spending a third of your income on transportation. Yeah. You know, Owning a, the car, running the car, maintaining. All that sort of stuff. Yep. Banks aren't going to help you out with that. They're going to help you out with the capital cost, the land-based acquisition. They're not going to be your friend in terms of your ongoing costs. And, so, and, and to put that in, in context, more than 30% of your salary on your mortgage, more than that is considered mortgage stress. Yes, exactly. So this is a kind of urban stress, mm. um, and banks are really not helping helping that out, helping you out with that. So the, so as part of this kind of reform in terms of, you know, how do we make suburbs better, suburbs better the dark matter, the dark matter of banking, finance, is part of the design equation. It's part of the design strategy. So mm. this is not a conversation between planners and designers and even government. This is a conversation also including finance. This is part of the part of unlocking, you know, the efficiencies that can happen in, and, and benefits from a, a better, well-designed, well-connected Well, city. Rob would know this better than anyone too. Is, is there perhaps policy decisions too that can sort of unlock that too? Because I know things like stamp duty are good because they encourage stamp duty savings, buying off the plan because they encourage development and there are decent savings people doing that but what it means is a lot of people buying things without really understanding what they're buying they're buying off and that maybe don't quite understand the plan if they walked into those places those dwellings after they're actually built maybe they might think of it a little bit differently and there's a number of sort of policy mechanisms you could do to you know why aren't architects fees mm. tax deductible or yeah you know, why don't you get some savings from those? Yeah. That'd be a great thing. <laughs> I mean, I think you're absolutely right about the financing, and I think uh, you know if there was more data out there that actually showed people what was happening in their finance model. I mean, uh, SGS did a fantastic study that just looked at uh, increasing uh, house property values. And um, if you saw that graph, you'd start to think twice about where you actually bought a house in terms of its future growth. Mm. Um, we live with this dream that you buy a house, it's going to prove cap- uh, you know, its capital value, and we'll sell it off sometime in the future and make a huge profit. Uh, that's not happening in some areas. In fact, in some areas, it's possibly going down in value. Mm. And uh, Huge areas of the Western world is going down in value. Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, so there's a bit of a subprime running that nobody really wants to talk about. Yep. Correct. Katie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would like to pick apart a little bit more this idea about creating a Nightingale-type model in the suburbs and potentially how we could relook at the existing housing stock that we've got in the outer suburbs and think about retrofitting that. I reckon some, I reckon some planning policy would be a long, would go a long way to helping that. Um, and it doesn't need to be, as Rob's just in their study showed, I mean, the, the study we talked about earlier was developing on the tram corridors. And if you do that, we can basically house the entire population without touching the, the rest of the future population. Yeah, the future population. But also, I mean, if you allow just simple subdivisions across, if you could say, okay, well, you can, if you've got a, if you've got a, a, a 
400 square metre block or a 500 square metre block, you can automatically subdivide it without a planning permit, say, or, you know, allow, facilitate development in that manner, you could relatively easily start to accommodate that high density within the suburbs. So that's a relatively simple way of doing it. And another way that I think is really effective is if you look at a subdivision in the suburbs, the distance between the front of one house and the front of the next house across the nature strip, the road, etc., is massive. Mm. You don't need it for the, the, you know, the amount of traffic you're going to get there. So we're wasting a lot of the space. In fact, uh, when I was in Harare, I did a very interesting study where it had been subdivided like that. I found you could actually fit two more properties within that space. Right. Uh, and they could be commercial, so you could actually have an income coming from them. Okay. So there, there are many ways we can actually improve those suburbs. I think there's a lot of ways you can do efficiency, Kate. I think the other thing is around zoning. So one of the reasons the suburbs kind of are suburbs fundamentally is the idea that they are a particular use. So, and that's not necessarily has to be the case. So... As we move to a more complex economy where, you know, distinctions between work, uh, you know, living, you know, collapse, we still have a very traditional zoning system that's based on 19th century anxieties around pollution applying in the 21st century, i.e., let's say I own a suburban house in a residential one zone and I just suddenly find a market for making, you know, small toys. I basically can't do that. Yes, yes. Um, so... Our, our, our land use requirements, our land use obligations, which is, which is essentially what we call zoning, are they too outdated to allow for proximity-based urbanism? So let's say I set up a small toy factory in my backyard. Mm. It's not polluting anybody. It's not, it's not an aluminium smelter. Can I have people coming around? To, and at the moment, basically, the suburban context disallows that to occur and that is an inefficiency in the system this is a this is an emerging market that's not able to be responded to i mean people work at home sure mm-hmm. yeah. they might be doing office work at home but they're not doing some of the more interesting emerging things yeah. from home so i think the zoning and planning system needs to reflect how and allow for a changing condition mm. that's, very- that's become even more sort of uh pertinent too once we start to get you know 3d printer technology and those sorts of things where actually we can really simply manufacture things at home mm-hmm. and what does that mean that sort of dissolves a lot of traditional yeah. networks the residential zoning is very restrictive yeah. so these blanket zones cover hectares and hectares of land it's the, by far the largest land use zoning in metropolitan Melbourne. oh absolutely and that locks down that area for pure residential use you can maybe have a small corner shop for example mm. but you can't really have any flexible industrial or not even industrial commercial small-scale commercial uses right. happening. In what if I wanted to run a cafe out of my kitchen because suddenly there was a whole lot of people around me in the middle of suburbs who didn't have a cafe? Mm. I can't do that. So flexible zoning, that's what we want, planners. Well, yeah. and that's well maybe you don't want zoning. I mean, I think that's what we're saying. Rob said it. You know, no zoning. <laughs> mixed-use cities. If you want to depress yourself, go to the front of the planning scheme mm. and look at, I think there are about 76 different zones. I very, very and then often challenge do, someone, <laughs> Challenge someone to work out what each of those is trying to tell you you can do. Mm. So what if we got down to areas that just said we've got a, you know, no-grow area, area in transition and a fast-grow area, but we want them to be mixed-use, reasonable density and well-connected. What a planning scheme that would be. Do you know what I think we should do off-air? We should redesign the planning scheme. Having just tried to open a business in commercial one zone, it's taken from February till October. 
Oh, but I tell you what, when they, last time I tried to redesign the residential planning zones, it became more complex. That's the problem. Yeah, isn't it? So they're gonna cut, they, it's a similar idea. We're going to have you know these three different types of residential zoning. Here's the one you can just build whatever you want. And through this process, they made it way more complex than it ever was before. It was like it's like every time the government comes out and says we're going to cut red tape, we sort of go, oh my god, it's going to get worse. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. But I mean, I think the worst thing they did there was having got those zones in, they didn't turn around and then say, and by the way, the target for your municipality is X thousand or X hundred thousand. Mm. So they allowed everybody to opt out. They let, they let the local councillors decide. Yeah. Right. Neighbourhood residential lockdown. The, o- the other thing that we, the, uh, we've talked a lot about on the Architects Radio Show before was talking about a metropolitan planning authority and really taking it out of the hands of the, of the local planning authority because sometimes I just think the, the local politics get in the way of good common sense. Well, just to be clear, what Saibik's saying is in the Australian system of government, we have no form of government with the exception of the Brisbane City Council, that is responsible for the city. Mm-hmm. And that's what, we were, what, what I was hoping the to city, see. The city, where 80, 80% of the wealth in Australia is generated, has no form of government. Now, Rob has done some great work in the city of Melbourne. It represents a small portion of metropolitan Melbourne. Mm. The city of Sydney is great as a great local government, but it's a local government. Mm-hmm. We do not have a form of government that represents the single biggest area where people live and where wealth is generated. So we need to read it on the government as well. Let's do it, let's do it. I was hoping when Malcolm Turnbull came in with his city agenda, we'd maybe see something like that happening, but unfortunately... But the ministers for cities didn't last long. They did not last long. long. I think Malcolm's caught in the middle. Um, Simon, Stuart and Rob, thank you so much. This has been a killer show. Thanks, Bushy. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jed, for hitting all those buttons in the correct sequence. Katie... Awesome. Thank you. Awesome work. Well played. Um, next week, we're going to have Adrian Hearn on, and he's going to be talking Cuba with us. And um, the superfluity people, they've showed up on time, which is admirable. <laughs> well, we can't we believe we've got, this, we've got this double header of previous shows I leading know. into us. I feel like a TARDIS has exploded somewhere torn. and there's a time rift going yeah. on. I feel torn between two lovers. <laughs> it, shows like a, a fool. it shows the depth of your heritage that you've got two previous shows to sandwich in between. Uh, Bushy's my name. We'll see you next Tuesday. But until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.